how did I change? Well, one was that great recession and deciding to move into a much more um, sustainable way of thinking, which is social enterprises that actually took care of people in the environment, the triple bottom line, people, planet, and then profit in that order. On this podcast, we share inspirational stories, unique strategies, and the life lessons from entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and innovators in our communities who have transformed their lives and the community around them. Hi, my name is Kevin LePage, and you're listening to Exponentialists On Air. Today on Exponentialist On Air, we have Ruben Cantu, someone who has dedicated his life to empowering others and building a better community in Austin, Texas through diversity and equity. From working at Apple during the first iPhone's release to moving into social impact and even being a speaker at the UN Foundation World Government Summit, his body of work is incredible and I'm blessed to have him on the show today. He's going to talk about his story and the current climate for aspiring entrepreneurs and executives of color within Austin and the greater United States. I'm so excited for this, Ruben. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kevin, for having me. Now, I want to start off, well, we'll get the ball rolling a little bit with a question. What is your definition of entrepreneurship? You know, a lot of people have touted this term of entrepreneurship very easily and loosely because it kind of creates like an exclusivity definition by by uh, by just by the word uh interest to start something new that didn't exist before and to enter into a venture that is not so sure or secure and so a lot of people are like well you know small business owners are entrepreneurs too and then technically to the definition it could be but really the entrepreneur is the one who's innovating and taking all the risk when no one else is so are people who start like Chick-fil-A, no, no offensive Chick-fil-A, right? This is an example. <laughs> Franchises, entrepreneurs. Yes, I guess you could include them, but really it's the founder of Chick-fil-A, right? Like they're the ones who went off and created something that didn't exist before. So me and my mission is to try to help create as many new entrepreneurs as possible who are venturing and innovating and making the world a better place. Yeah, I think, I think you touched on it in which uh, entrepreneurship is part of just building something new, initial original idea to come out of it. They assume all the risk, right? You know, um, it's not hard to be successful in business when you follow a formula, but entrepreneurs are figuring it on their way uh, each, each, each step along the way. And so um, that's why I have so much respect for them. But at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is really a journey about finding who you really are. And so to me, that's one of the byproducts and maybe even the, the, the gift that entrepreneurship gives. Sure, there's, you know, conversations about how entrepreneurship is mentally taxing and the psychological effects of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, that all exists. But it's also about framing and understanding how to deal with those challenges. Because, yes, you can be in a very daunting situation where you don't know the future. But when you start really understanding and learning about yourself and who you are, it's funny how when you get yourself right and your mind right, how things start kind of shaping in your direction. Am I saying it's all a pie in the sky, you know, easy cakewalk? No. But it really is about how you decide to face those challenges. And if all these challenges are deteriorating you and, and, and def defeating you, then you got to understand, is it the, the actual situations that are defeating you or the way you're reacting to those challenges. So the more you can understand who you are through this process of being an entrepreneur, the better you can create a business that can in turn create a culture that creates resiliency within. 
Okay, so building upon like finding out who you are and uh, focusing on building something new, what is your definition of social entrepreneurship then? Ah, well, let me just say by saying I love the word social entrepreneurship, but one day I want to make it obsolete. They're like, why would you want to do that? But think about it. You know, right now we've had to classify a certain category of entrepreneurs and enterprises as social enterprises or social entrepreneurs because we've walked away so far from the definition of doing good that we have to say, oh, that's business like regular people and they're not taking care of the world. So we have to do something to take care of the world. We're social entrepreneurs. And that's great. It's a noble vision. I mean, I'm the one that's been touting it in this community for the longest time. But my vision and my hope is that we never have to use that term again. They're like, what? Yeah. If we, we know we're successful when we no longer have to say the word social entrepreneurship because we've made it so um, embedded into the culture, into the way things are done, that there's no need to say social anymore because it's already part of their business model from the get-go. Not an afterthought like CSR, like, oh, and we're going to give $10,000 away to this charity or nonprofit. Like, no, it's in our business model of who we are as people to take care of the people around us and the environment. And I can see that, I mean, your definition of social entrepreneurship and trying to make that obsolete, I can see it straight coming from your definition of entrepreneurship and just trying to mend those ideas together. And um, through your career trajectory, I've definitely, uh, just reading it, I've definitely seen as you've been trying to work that way around. Let's talk about from ages uh, zero through 18, before you get to college, um, before you went to UT, let's talk about different obstacles that you had, um, that you faced in your life that, um, that you had to overcome as you went uh, along your path in your life. So it wasn't until recently that I started becoming open to this, but, um, you know, I come from Mexican immigrant parents. Um, I am recent, like first generation from my dad's side and about fourth generation from my mom's side. So we have history on my mom's side of being here. But even through all that, <laughs> the journey out of poverty has been one that I am very familiar with. Uh, I'm the first one in my family to go to college. Um, my mom graduated from high school and that's as far as she went. Um, my father didn't finish college, didn't finish high school at all. He only got to middle school. And I started sharing that with you because um, while they worked, you know, my grandmother took care of me in housing, uh, the, the uh, public housing. And so I never wanted to talk about that. Um, go, well, I didn't know any difference. But then after I became conscious of that, I was, actually, I grew up in public housing. I was like, oh, I don't want to let people know that because they're going to judge me. But now I'm like, you know what? So what? Like... I am a product of that environment, and I'm here to show that it is possible to be able to uh, do as much as you can to um, elevate yourself. And so to me, um, I am proud of the journey, um, but I'm also proud of the people who stepped in to help make a difference. Whenever anyone touts this self-made man concept i not only get vehemently like angered but i laugh in the face of it because there's no one person who is self-made because we're all interdependent there's no one tree that grew without the elements of nature around it so when anyone talks about like this american individualism like self-made man this doesn't exist well you know like they, they came from nothing okay they could have come from nothing 
but you have to interact to be able to make a dollar with other people and customers. So your customers believed in you, even if no one else did, right? So let's go ahead and rectify this vision of the American dream of the self-made millionaire, the self-made man, to talk about how it takes communities to build millionaires. So let's create strong communities that can create the environment so that millionaires and billionaires can be born. Then we'll be honest and truthful to our heritage and our upbringing. So in that place, how do I, what, what challenges did I face? Well, being the first of many feels very lonely. And, you know, not having the resources that your peers do when you get to UT or even as you're growing up is very lonely and hard. Um, you know, I didn't have a car technically till I was like 22, right? And they're like, oh my God, I got my first car when I was 16. I was like, yeah, I was riding the city bus, right? I got really good at knowing how to navigate the city bus. You know, when I, when I started doing my radio show <laughs> um, that I was really passionate about in hip hop, I would be lugging my record. See, back then we had things called vinyl. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, okay. <laughs> and so I had crates of vinyl and then we put them on the city bus and it sucked loading those crates of vinyl to your radio show. That's a very high level, right? But all throughout, it's just been a journey of struggle. And sometimes I wondered and asked my parents, why did I have to struggle so much to try to be able to, you know, have the basic decency? Like, one thing I didn't struggle is, like, we always had food on the table. Other people are not so lucky. So that was a differentiator. I had parents that were together. So that, that, that was a tremendous help. And there was always food on the table. We may not have always had the luxuries. We may be short on clothes. Um, you know, we had a roof over our head and we had heat and we had food, right? Um, and so they, they didn't fail on that part. And we, we made, they made sure we went to school every day. So for the most part, they tried to do a really good job. But after that, like all the luxuries, like Christmas presents, things like that, birthday presents. Yeah, like that, that wasn't always present. And we, we, some of us who have grown up in privilege take that for granted. Like, oh, well, you didn't have a Christmas present? Um, yeah, well, there's times where, you know, you uh, saw your friends and peers get, like, the latest game systems and things like that. And it's like, here's some gum or here's some socks, right? Like, you know, and you're like, can I go over to my cousin's house so I can play video games? And that, you know, was always something that, you know, I desired. And so I talked to my mom. I'm like, mom, why is it so why, – why, why can't I have what they have? And I said, like, well, son, honestly – I didn't go to college, so I don't have that kind of money that uh, I could have if, if to give you, and, you know, we're just going to make do with what we can. Why didn't you go to college? Well, son, like, I didn't know about college. No one told us about college. There wasn't anyone encouraging us to go to college. We thought high school was all there was, and then that was it. And I was like, well, this is not fair. I was like, well, that's why you're going to go to college. Well, why don't I have to go to college? Well, son... Because that's the real world right now. And you can either do something about it or you can complain. What are you going to do? I'm like, well, I want to make money now. I said, oh, you want to make money now? Okay. Well, how about we figure out how to get you a job? Like, but I'm 10. Who's going to hire me? And they're like, well, well, I happen to know a friend of the family and they have a snow cone stand. Why don't you go sell some snow cones over the summer? Sign me up. And so I show up. Hi, my name is Ruben. And I'm here to help you sell snow cones. I didn't know jack squat about running a business. I didn't know anything about handling the books. I didn't know about cleaning shop. But all these things were very helpful because they help create the grit and the resilience that I needed to be able to prove to myself 
that as long as I decided that I wasn't going to stay helpless or in despair, but I would do something about it, uh, and then the community rather gathered around me to help me, I knew that I could, I would never really truly be poor in my life. And so it was upon then that I started realizing that deciding to be um, helpless is sometimes a choice. Even though all of us have gone through individual and unique hardships, and I'm not here to compare minds to others, there's still an ability to not lose hope. Now, can hope solve and put hope on, uh, food on the table? No, right? But it is in that mentality and that desire to not give up in your mind that will be part of the factor that help you liberate yourself. And so it's easy to just tout hope. Um, we need actual systemic change and issues within our low underserved communities. But I am here to say that without hope, we can have all the resources available and still have people not be able to take advantage of them or be part of the system. Uh, the last thing anyone wants to do is be dependent. So I I'm here to help create an interdependence, an interdependent culture, because we cannot do it alone. We have to do it together. And the privilege of our economy and the privilege of our society have to step up and understand that they cannot, they do not have this wealth without the underclass. We need all of us to succeed and we need to make sure that those rungs on those ladders from the lower class and working class to the middle class are strengthened and from the middle class up to the, the upper class are strengthened. There used to be a time in this country when that was actually possible. It is much harder today. But to finish out your question about what are some of the challenges I faced? It was being able to face the reality that I was not going to be handed anything, that I had to go work for things, and I had to learn how to hustle. But guess what? After that summer, you couldn't tell me I couldn't do something. Amazing. So you, you talk about this interdependence, and I, I can see the, the entrepreneurship coming out of you, but obviously you need a little bit of help along the yes. way. So uh, what, where did you see that there was a major part of mentorship and sponsorship on your journey uh, through life other than your parents pushing you to keep succeeding and going to college? I love music. Music's at the heart of who I am. I may have taken this path of entrepreneurship and social impact at the heart of it. Music has always been it. That's why I became a radio DJ because I wanted to have my own record label one day and I was on that path. But I want to thank some mentors who actually stepped in and, and helped me get to where I'm at. There's two gentlemen who helped run the radio show upon where I started. Their names Adam and Dean. And these two uh, gentlemen really didn't have they didn't have a prior friendship aside from being associated with like the um radio show but they became friends because of it because they wanted to help young people get involved with radio i just ended up showing up every week while everyone flaked out i was ready because this is my dream i'm gonna make it i'm gonna be the next casey Kasem, rick d's you may not even know who these names are but I don't. it's what like today's Ryan Seacrest was, right? Oh, radio hosts. And radio okay. hosts, exactly. That was me. Like, put me, like, get me, give me a microphone. I can't shut up. Um, and they allowed my voice to develop and encouraged me to speak my truth. And, you know, seven years later, I look back and I had started a, a radio show at 14. And by the time I was 21, I had started my first company. So it's people that like that, that double down. And by the way, these are two white men, by the way. So uh, I want to uh, definitely stand up and speak for white allies who stepped in to help people of color 
who had no reason or uh, like duty to do so. But now that I look back at it, what they were truly doing was revolutionary. Um, they gave a kid a chance, on these kids really, a chance to develop their voice, take them on their first interna- like uh, national airplane rides and trips to conferences and speak next to people like Ira Glass from This American Life. Like That stuff doesn't really happen to normal kids from the hood. And so these are the thankless heroes. And so if you're a mentor out there that's like feeling unappreciated, know that people like Ruben are being created every day because of your work, right? And then that's why I, in turn, I am now mentoring as many um, people as possible that I can in my end and seeing them grow and become phenomenal, right? Um, It takes all of us. Uh, There is a part that we have to contribute to and there's a part that the community has to contribute to. But that's the beauty of it, right? Like the tree can't grow um, on its own without the environment, but the tree has to still do its part to grow. But if the balance of the nutrients, water, and all that are there, the tree grows into a beautiful, uh, a beautiful living tree, right? Like it's it's amazing how collaboratively we can win. We have forgot about that collaboration. Okay, and you bring up your wanting to mentor other people as many as possible. And so I think that goes directly into, you know, core media strategies, trying to, um, I guess, mentor like specific people and bring out their stories. So core media strategies was our front end um, and helped become from, from production company to becoming a marketing agency. And then under that, we started toying with like, how do we actually create a movement that's promoting social impact, entrepreneurship and innovation and that social good U.S. And we've done a lot under that that um, auspices, that uh, that that scope. And then from there, it's taken me to create Level Up Institute, which then has brought me to UT to where I'm doing that. So as far as mentoring people, um, a lot of my work right now currently as I serve as the Director of Inclusive Innovation and Entrepreneurship at UT Austin um, really is about paving a path and creating a picture of a possibility of what people of color and those from our marginalized communities can be. I believe that the next phase of civil rights is economic equity and empowerment. So um, my counter and answer to gentrification is equitable development, meaning that gentrification has a definition that comes from the word genteel or gentile, right? Like the, the, the noble folks coming in and fixing up a place that's just distraught. And, and that term, just from that lens, sounds very oppressive. Like, who are you to come into our community and try to fix it up? Like, you know, so equitable development says we're coming into a community to develop it, but in an equitable fashion. And so we're actually working with the community, involving them, the long residents uh, that have historically lived there, the families, and figuring out how we can create mutual wins, right? It's like, oh, well, Ruben, that's an ideal. No one's going to want to, you know, has the time to do that. They need, they want to, the investors just want to put, buy money, uh, flip a house, and, and then get their money back. If we continue doing that, then we are continuing to divest in the historical richness of our communities, how that relates to mentorship. So in my office, I'm here to help pave a path for generational wealth. Simple. That's like our big goal. That's um, the BHAG. The big, that's the yeah. big, hairy, audacious goal. Right. Can we address gentrification through helping create generational wealth for underserved communities? So I'm out there campaigning and seeing every single person that I can that is of a marginalized or underrepresented background and encouraging them 
to think about entrepreneurship in a new way because when they launch and decide to decide to start businesses, then in turn, will all of them succeed? No, you need practice to kind of be successful at that. But if we can help create more businesses, then we create more jobs that are owned by them. And if they own, they, they create jobs, then these people can actually stay in their neighborhoods because they're, contrib- they're contributing economically to the system. And so no longer do they have to be forced of having to sell and move away because they can't afford the property taxes. So that's my answer. And so I am constantly out there mentoring and teaching as many people as I can about the value of entrepreneurship and more importantly, the value of social entrepreneurship so that they don't repeat the same mistakes that we're currently doing now because we are right now uh, analogous and sorry for the people who are this, but we are analogous to the stereotypical meathead uh, bodybuilder who goes in and pumps iron and has no character of substance of any because all they care about is getting big and being bulky. But then there is the more conscious bodybuilder who understands wellness and understands that image is only a part of it, but understanding how to develop their soul and integrity of who they are and that makes it a ritual and almost a spiritual practice in getting healthy and working out, that's the full human being. We're trying to create entrepreneurs to understand that. Because it's one thing for me to teach you, hey, here's a couple of rich quick schemes, or even if not that quick rich schemes, here's a couple of ways for you to make a lot of money. Go, go good in real estate and like go flip houses, right? Yeah, sure, you can make money that way. But what did you do to the community? How did you add to the problem? Are you actively trying to solve for this solution? That's the difference. And that's why we're having this conversation. That's why I'm spending time uh, mentoring people who just want to start food trucks to people who want to create the next disruptive technology. Perfect. You bring up a lot of good points and thank you for sharing um, everything you're doing now and everything um, that you've been through. And so you started out in high school in the college area wanting to be, you know, radio host and trying to be in media and entertainment. Mm -hmm. And then um, you transitioned, pivoted towards, um, and and also you've been using a lot of your media um, background in what you're doing today and what you've been doing the past decade. Um, But where did that change happen? Because you went from working in entertainment to a short period of uh, Apple and then pivoting into kind of the social impact within Austin. The Great Recession hit in 2008 and I realized that we did this to ourselves. We self-inflicted ourselves because we got so greedy. We kept passing the buck. Oh, toxic loans? We'll just put them in next to good loans and we'll just see how it rides the wave. We were intentionally greedy. And that's the thing about when the system gets so big that you start losing touch with the real humanity of people. People just become numbers. That's why we held, That's why this was created. We didn't have to go through such a great crisis, but it's a learning lesson. Let us not forget about that. We don't have to go through that again. Now, we had a great recovery, but it's because we as a people build these corporations out. And said, we're going to keep our country together. Let's not do this again. And guess what? We're trying to go back there again. I'm like, guys, have we not learned? And so our own desire for greed over anything else has brought us to this point. They say that money is the root of all evil. And actually, I say, no, it's clarified. It's, it's the love of money. See, the love for people is really where it needs to be at. But we don't think like that as business people. And so how did I change? Well, one was that great recession. And deciding to move into a much more 
um, sustainable way of thinking, which is social enterprises that actually took care of people and the environment, the triple bottom line, people, planet, and then profit in that order. Two, 2013 through 2015, we had a lot of stories about young black men and men of color continually being assaulted by law enforcement and having no repercussions. From Chicago to Ferguson to here in Austin, we kept seeing, we kept seeing men of color continue to be assaulted. So I share that to say, I was like, what do I do? How do we change this? And they're like, we need police reform. We need, like, okay, cool. And then people started marching on the streets and they're like, aren't you going to join us? I'm like, yeah, no, that's great. I, I hope. But that's not the real issue. The issue with people is that we think about things such in a only binary way. We either think about things on a very personal level because that's how we interact as human beings or we think things very abstractly and we lose touch with the personal. So we become uh, meta thinkers. But there's a, there's a value in having this, this duality of being a systems thinker and an individualist um, thinker as well and figuring out how, how to vacillate between the two. And here's why. I realized that if the issue was law enforcement and their accountability, that could only be fixed through training and better policy. And then I was like, well, then how do we create better laws and better policy? Well, we got to understand how government works. Hmm. So then now we figure like, oh, do I need to run for office? I was like, hmm, let's think about this deeper. I was like, how, what if, even if I do become an, a, a lobbyist or even a person who has, holds office, how does that really work? I was like, well, the people who really influence that are big corporations. I was like, crap. Because right now, corporations are people, remember? And corporations have equal voice as much as people, even though they have tons of money. So that's jacked up. We need to fix that. Uh, corporations should not have the same voice as people. Um, and I'm a capitalist, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm a conscious capitalist, and I'm saying that. So, you know, fight me if you want. Corporations should not have... Right now, we, I believe we live in a corporate fascism system. Even though we're a democracy and a republic, if you, if you study the amount of money that corporations funnel into uh, protecting their own assets and wealth, it's ridiculous. They're like, oh, but they're the ones providing jobs. Yeah, look at how much stays at the very top and how much trickles down to the bottom. Like the, the amount of pay of a CEO to the lowest rung is ridiculous, right? So I was like, okay, we need to understand how corporations run. Okay. Um, if we want to understand how corporations run, then we need to understand how executives think. Crap. That means that we need to figure out how to create the next generation of conscious leaders. That's where I need to start. We need to start earlier. Because they did a study that said over like 60% of like CEOs have psychopathic tendencies, which is crazy, oh, okay. right? And, yeah. and then I saw this uh, documentary of the both of them about the Firefest, And I'm seeing... Oh, yeah like the the ingredients of what's happening in the Wolf of Wall Street in the 80s all over again. We need more conscious leaders. We need people who think bigger, but also haven't lost touch with the ground in the individual level. This is why I love the work that I do, because I'm still in East Austin. I still see what's happening. I see the divestment and investment in communities. Yesterday, I was at Blackshire Elementary for Role Model Day, and I was talking to second and third graders and fourth and fifth graders and I'll say something very humbly. I was encouraging them and teaching them about entrepreneurship and the value of creating businesses. They had never heard anything about this. I was teaching them, say the word after me, entrepreneurship. It was cute. And I had the white kids 
say, I'm going to be a rocket scientist and I'm going to go to this school and I'm gonna, and great for them. I'm not mad at that at all. And I had some of the kids of color like, I think I want to become a mechanic like my uncle, right? Nothing wrong with being a mechanic, but the stark differences of, of how they're thinking about what is possible for them, even at this age. And I'm like, oh my God, how are we ever going to reach parity and fix our policy issues and fix this this oppressive system that we've been grown up as a like, Ruben, you should be happy for this oppressive system because you got to access, you know, college education. You're the exception. You should be happy to be a capitalist. Yes, but we can do better. We cannot rest on our laurels and we must strive for that quote unquote American dream. But we think we need a new one. I think actually we need a new American dream because the old American dream said, you're going to come here to this country, work hard, and as long as you work hard, you'll get ahead. you got a house, and you have a lot access to, to, to equity in life. But when the average American, from one of the stats I memorized, is like two years ago, the average American wealth of a white family in the United States is about $185,000, and respectively for a black and Latino family, it's $4,003,000. That's like a 35X or something like yeah, multiple. It's insane. it's insane. It's it's highway crime. And check this out. You know how they say as Texas goes, so goes the country? Well, I say as Austin goes, so goes Texas. And check this out. We have we have been talked about and written about as being the most economically disparate city in the country. And we have black flight. Why do we have black flight? Well, similar to white flight where, you know, whites didn't want to live in the urban core with with blacks. We have black flight because they can't afford to live in the core of the city anymore. And so not only are they not part of the tech community, but they're trying to still be part of the economy. And if they do find a job, now they have to trek in and create more traffic to, to our, our corridors because we haven't figured out how to create equitable neighborhoods where everybody can live. And they're like, well, Ruben, I have a black friend. I mean, I'm not racist. I'm like, okay, well, it's not, we're not, stop individualizing things. Let's look at things on a systemic level. And when the black population is at about 7% or less, it, it, it wavers within that space. Um, we are committing highway crime by not creating a space that is open for our blacks, brothers, and sisters. We need to be able to create a space where they also have a voice and a seat at the table. Otherwise, this progressive city that we talk about is only a talk. It's like when we say, we're the live music capital of the world. I'm like, yeah, our live musicians can't afford to live here. What are we talking about? So, yes, I have been promoting a vision of having Austin become the social innovation capital of the world since 2010. But I can't even get to that point where we can't address our, our equity and disparity issues. So that's why I started talking more about this issue so that one day we can actually get to a point where actually socially innovative. And I think the most socially innovative thing we could do is bring equity to these marginalized communities. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I think that touches on a lot of what's happening around the Austin community. Um, because while, you know, around the world, you know, all these companies are thinking about moving down here and having all these headquarters, um, there's great uh, economic growth. But there's also a huge economic disparity. And then you brought up the um, the gentrification of East Austin and how that's happening currently. I'm currently in conversations with Austin's top tech companies to have this fixed. We're launching an initiative out of my office called the Central Texas 2030 Inclusion Challenge. 
It's real simple. It challenges Austin's top tech companies and the adjacent high-growth industry sectors like energy and healthcare to do something real simple, to have their workforce reflect Central Texas's demographic by the year 2030. See, by 2030, the demographic of Texas will have flipped. And it's actually going to flip around 2022 or 2023 for Austin. So it's going to happen. So we have two choices. We can continue to import talent from the coast and push people here out. Or we can use the talent that we have in our own backyard, create a pipeline issue, and not have to worry about a quota. Because when you have supply, a surplus of supply, There'll be plenty of people that we can hire, but we can't hire them right now because they're not trained to take those jobs. So how about we start working on that? And so it is the morally responsible thing and also economically viable thing for corporations to do this over the long term because they save money. Right now, the short term, they're like, oh, my God, I can't invest in that, a pipeline issue. That's going to take years. I don't know if I'm going to still be CEO. Then, and who knows? I got to make sure I can take care of my quarterly earnings. Otherwise, I'm going to get fired by my board. Yeah, companies thinking too short term, not long term. Companies are myopic. I'm challenging CEOs to join me. I was like, well, Ruben, what do you know? You've never run a big corporation. Yeah, I have not run a big corporation, but we can all agree that we can do sensible actions to improve equity, not only within our corporation, but be good stewards of the community. I'm not asking for rational flip of the switch, uh, like sorry, radical flip of the switch. I'm asking for gradual transition and course. But then when you see um, companies, big tech giants being sued by the Department of Labor for not paying women of color uh, uh, equally and keeping them from being to have upward mobility in their careers, you're like, what's going on here? Like, is this who we really are? Is there, is there a resistance from the very top that's very homogenous, scared to lose it all? Let me tell something to white CEOs right now. We are not coming after you. We need you as allies. You are part of the solution. Guess what? When you make room at the table, we all make money together. Let's make some more money together because the pie gets bigger. It's not about us against you, right? I am one of you, right? I am part of this American fabric. We need to do the morally responsible thing and economically viable thing to make sure that our our GDP and our workforce is competitive amongst other global economies. That doesn't mean I don't want other global economies to succeed. What I'm trying to say is that the leading position that we have as the United States will be lost if we do not start investing in our young people today and having them become competitive because China, Japan, and um, India are biting at our heels. And, you know, we're literally having brain drain because we can't get immigration reform. We're training these great minds and then shipping them away because we don't want to hire them. Guess what? We need to be more sensible and 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 strategic about what we do because our future depends on it. Our infrastructure depends on tax dollars to be able to rebuild our, our, our inf- highway infrastructure system and everything along that side. But we can't do it without corporations doing their part, individuals doing their part. We, as American people, do their part. You know why they called the uh, generation that fought war to the greatest generation? Because they were all united under one vision of America of who we are, and we're going to fight this great evil, which is Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. We're going to do this together. We're not going to be succumbed to fascism. 
You know, there was even stories about individuals committing suicide because they didn't get called to be part of the, the army or the military. That's how much, that's how patriotic people were back then. And so I say that, where have, where have our American values gone? Sure, has America made missteps in the way we've built this country through slavery and oppression? Yes. But there is an ideal that keeps our country together. Yes, I have Mexican lineage, but I'm American as well. I'm born here. This is all I know. And we need to be able to be investing into our young people, especially those who are here who've been born here but weren't documented, to be part of this economy. And we need to make it front and center. We need to stop kicking down the can down the road um, because it's not politically expedient. Because if we do that, we're doing, we're doing more harm to ourselves. So I ask leaders who are listening to this to step up. Let's have this conversation. Let's stop, quote unquote, lollygagging around and do the responsible thing. It's going to be hard, but great leadership takes hard work. Touch on uh, focusing on the younger populations and trying to build them up. And you also focus on the leaders. And so for someone who's in high school or for someone in college, I know you're working currently with UT on inclusive innovation entrepreneurship. So how, what should they do to um, try to promote this systemic change? Leaders or young people? Young people. Young people, you have all the world in front of you. Um, I still consider myself hopefully part of the young generation, but I'm kind of getting that middle part. Young people, use your voice. My friend Alex in the Bronx told me, I'm going to run for Congress. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And, you know, this young lady has, 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 has a hard hill up to, uh, to, to climb to get to Congress. She's never had in any office, held any office. Lo and behold, Alex knocked on doors left and right, organized, and did not take no for an answer. And it was a shocker to all of us. And now Alex is in Congress. And she is taking names and sure she's a freshman congressperson but i'm expecting great things from her but as alex stands up and speaks up so will i and so will a lot more young people we need you to start running for office we need you to get politically savvy not in a manipulative kind of way that's not what we're trying to play we need servant leaders and I need you to start thinking about what kind of community do we all deserve? Not one that just serves the people who are in power and those who are with wealth, but for all of us. So it works for all of us. If we really want to tell capitalism is great, then make sure it works for all of us. Because I can tell you right now, the way capitalism is working right now, it's not working for all of us. And some people say, well, it's actually working perfectly because the people with the most politically, uh, sorry, the people with the most intelligence are the ones that rise to the top. And I'm like, is that really the world we want to create? Is that the world that we want to tout that, you know, if you have um, more means than others, then you can get ahead? Yeah, because that's the American way. Why do we have to have extreme losers for you to be an extreme winner? I'm not against you winning. Let's all win. Let's all break bread together. But when we have issues with veterans not being taken care of, even though they fought for us, when we have homeless, it, the way it is growing right now, homeless people, or the homelessness issue, um, when we have single mothers unable to get themselves out of poverty, let's really think about what kind of world do we really want to create? What kind of country do we want to create? Step up, young people. Use your voice. Because that is the most powerful thing you have. 
Um, and the more you educate yourself about these issues, the more you can have a educated discussion and dialogue with those in power and get them to understand, to see that it's time to change. No, we do not want to become a socialist country. That's not what we're touting. But there's socialist policies that we've had for the past 80 years, like uh, what happened after the New Deal, that helped create the world that we have today in the strongest middle class ever. So no, we don't want to be communism. We don't want to be communist. But there's a, there's a sensible middle, and we're not, we're not there right now. We've let the ultra-powerful dictate how our country runs. Our marginal tax is ridiculous. Um, and we need to study history and, and figure out when America was truly great, when we had the strongest middle class, and we had a strong capital, uh, capitalistic society, strong democracy, in the 50s and 60s, like, you should see the marginal tax rate and who was paying their share. I'm not saying that everybody should, everybody should pay something, but some people can pay more than others. And so to me, as, as an entrepreneur and wanting to create a lot of money, yes, but I also know that I have a responsibility. And I'm not trying to create a welfare state. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a, a, a country that works for all of us. And that's what we're going to work towards. Thank you. Closing it down a little bit, um, getting towards the end of our time. Um, but right now you're at UT. And as we've mentioned, you're a director of inclusive innovation entrepreneurship. So tell me a little bit about what you're specifically doing at UT um, currently. We have three initiatives. Mm -hmm. We have the Central Texas Inclusion Challenge that I talked about earlier. That is our meta goal. We have three initiatives under that. The Product Prodigy Institute is a career accelerator program that is targeted to low-income first-generation college students. It, teach them it teaches them entrepreneurship and product management so that they have the skills so they can transition into technology jobs. We chose product management because based on our research, product managers become CEOs at a higher rate or faster than any other position as possible. We believe that we need to create the next generation of CEOs that are from our community. So very intentional about that. One, so that's one. Two, we are launching a program in the fall called Wield Texas. It's the Women's Initiative on Entrepreneurship and Leadership Development. It is for women of color at UT who are showing aspirations and tracking down an executive level path so that within 10 years after leaving the institution, they're serving in executive level roles. And finally, in 2020, we'll launch an initiative um, focused around design thinking and problem solving um, that in encourages our young people and those from those communities to go inside their communities and solve some of the biggest issues that they're facing from the ground level, but be able to build those skills up so that they can work for design agencies like IDEO and Frog. So that's, that's what we're really trying to create, the next generation of thinkers and next generation of executives. I think those initiatives are amazing. I think I think we could really use those um, currently at UT and for the future. So, Ruben, I'd love to thank you for your time today. Um, when I was looking at your LinkedIn, I, um, you know, LinkedIn, the social media of champions, um, I was scrolling through, you know, experiences, and it said at the bottom, show five more. And I was like, all right, click. And then it, it said, scroll down, said show five more again. I was like, all right, click. And then under that, it said show three more. I was like, oh my gosh. He has so much experience um, in just such, such a short little time mentoring and providing impact on the community. And so, Ruben, I'd love to thank you for all of your work and for joining me today. Thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate it. 
No official update for Ruben since interviewing him, but I just want to touch on everything we didn't get to cover. I talked about his experience, and let's be honest, Ruben is a serial social entrepreneur if there's ever been one. We were able to discuss the overall environment for an aspiring entrepreneur, and I think that's very important. To help build your community, you need to understand your community and what your community needs to prosper and grow exponentially in the future. And Ruben is someone who is at the forefront of pushing for the community of Austin, by the community of Austin. We didn't even get to him speaking at a UN World Government Summit or his work at Apple early in his career and his work at MTV, so stay tuned. Hey, maybe we bring him on the show again. Who knows? Maybe we'll utilize the dartboard technique, see which businesses he talks about next. But check out episode two. It goes into more depth about how an aspiring entrepreneur goes through a pivot towards a startup if that's not the market that you're in right now. And I think it's super interesting. All right, thank you so much for listening. As always, you can contact us at theexponentialists.com under the podcast tab if you have any words of wisdom or advice that you would like to give our listeners for the next segment. Also, feel free to recommend any exponentialist you see in your community that could be guests on our podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all next week.